Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet Darren Cardoza. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, perhaps you know him by his online name, The Bitchy Waiter. He's a longtime New York City restaurant worker. He's an actor and a writer. His popular blog and social media sites are the voice for the restaurant workers around the world. He says out loud what most people in the restaurant industry are only allowed to think. And he says some of that stuff out loud a little bit later on in the show. First, let's meet Matt Bauer. He's the director of The Other Fellow, a new documentary that asks a simple question. What would it be like to share your name with legendary movie spy James Bond? It is the untold story of the real James Bonds. People like a Swedish superfan who changed his name to James Bond and opened his own James Bond museum. There's a South Bend, Indiana man, James Bond Jr., whose life has been marred by several police officers who absolutely refuse to believe that his name is James Bond. And of course, there's other Bonds in Vancouver, Toronto, London, Denver, Guyana, Europe, the U.S., and Baghdad. All of them are bound by being in the looming shadow of James Bond and the movie, The Other Fellow, explains how it creates an identity crisis like no other. The Other Fellow director, Matt Bauer, joined me via Zoom from New York City. Do you know why we're making this film? Um, because you want to know what it's like to be a James Bond. My name is Bond. 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 James Bond. It started with a Facebook search bar. You thought, what will happen if I punch in James Bond on Facebook and how many people will come up? When did it become a movie idea? So, uh, yeah, I, I started by contacting these guys on Facebook um, and it became a movie idea quite quickly. I, I sent them a message saying, hey, I'm thinking of making a movie. You, you know, is there any interesting story to tell? And I, of course, was expecting a lot of Aston Martin jokes and mm. Martini jokes. And, and I got those. However, the very first per James Bond who wrote back to me is actually the last James Bond who you meet in the film. Mm. And he told me this incredible story about him and his family um, that, that was actually, to be honest with you, quite horrific, um, but also quite kind of monumental. Um, and it, it was something I really didn't expect. And th then when I started speaking with a lot of the other James Bonds, I, I kept hearing these stories, which were kind of much more dramatic and a lot about kind of encounters with the police mm. and, and that sort of thing and things which spoke to deeper issues of kind of male identity and sexual identity and racial identity um, kind of far beyond the the Aston Martin jokes, which you might expect. And, and in the film, we deliberately burn through all of the everything you're right. expecting in the first 10 minutes <laughs> and, and then go much deeper, I think, than, than the audience is expecting. Well, I think that if you are named James Bond and you get pulled over by the police, you better have ID on you because no one yeah. is going to believe that your name is James Bond. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the great surprises. And I'll be honest with you, I only really caught it in the edit because we did mm -hmm. about 40 hours of interviews. Right. But when we got to the edit, it became clear that actually a lot of them had told this exact same story. And, and, and it's about how you must always 
carry ID on you if your name is James Bond. And that's because if you're you know, pulled over in your car, or you, you know, every five years we have an encounter with the police, whether we're criminals or not. <laughs> and if you don't have your ID on you, they will say, okay, tell me your name. If you say James Bond, you're going to end up getting arrested because they're going to think they're messing with you. Um, and then I think probably on a deeper level, what, what we discovered is, is the, the, the African-American James Bond in our film actually ended up going to prison for 60 days for this because even though it was sorted out in the end, they still claimed that he was antagonizing the police officer in the way he was saying it. Um, and yeah, that that was one of the most surprising, but also universal things that, that really unites all these James Bonds. You have such a variety of all the Bonds that you meet. There is uh, a gay New York theater director. Uh, we've just talked about the African-American James Bonds. Uh, there's a Swedish super fan, uh, James Bond, who's quite an outrageous character. And there is a line that that connects them all because when you have the name of one of the most famous fictional characters in the world, it has to affect your personality in some way. I think that names are very important. If you name your kid Bozo the Clown, then there's going to be repercussions for that. There's something about the name that is important, I think. When you're called James Bond, it's going to have an effect on your personality. Is there something observable for you in each of these encounters that you had uh, that came as an offshoot of being called James Bond? Well, I think, yeah, it's funny. So I'm in New York at the moment. Actually, in Seinfeld, there's a joke that, that says if you call your child bozo there's a good chance they'll become a, a clown and if, if you call your child jeeves there's a good chance yeah. they'll be a and it is weird with this i've noticed so much in the making of this film about how some so a friend of yours called jessica will be such a jessica and you can't imagine her being called something else and i think there is something outside of being called james bond that this film speaks to we spoke with a reporter called josh gay and and he's a he's a straight man whose life has been defined by homophobic uh, slurs and it's absolutely defined him and when it comes to the bond name yes it they're all connected yes because of their name but what i like is that they are all connected to like the digital noise of james bond mm -hmm. that goes on in our world and then that connects them to each other you're listening to director matt bauer on the richard Krauss show his film the other fellow is in select theaters and on vod now you don't hear the the term james bond because you're watching Goldfinger every day. You hear the term James Bond everywhere. I'm a big Below Deck fan, you know, the, the Bravo series mm -hmm. where they work on super yachts. Trust me, watch for it. They mention James Bond in every single episode because one of the guests will go, oh, that's very James Bond. Or they'll go, oh, you're looking like 007 tonight. It's almost a verb. Mm -hmm. And so it's that noise around the world constant every day that, that affects the guys in my film. And of course, you know, Bond has been going for 60 years. He's, he's considered the, the, the world's epitome of the alpha male, duty-free shop version of masculinity. <laughs> and so that adds a pressure, which being called something like, say, Luke Skywalker, abs absolutely wouldn't do to them. Um, and yeah, you can see that effect on all of them. It, it has absolutely kind of formed who they are. And, and yet, when I ask them, have you considered changing your name? That isn't something they've really considered, because I think at the same time, they wouldn't know who they were without it. You know, and I think that applies to, to, to many of us who have a, a thing. Mm -hmm. We can't imagine ourselves without it. So it's this weird catch-22 they're sort of in. 
even though that most of them don't really like it. That was the impression that I got because it's, it's an impossible name to live up to. And you're followed by jokes. One of the guys in the film says, imagine every day of your life, someone says, oh, your name is Bond, James Bond, or whatever the, the line is. Would you yeah. like that shaken or stirred? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, and it is, it must follow you like a plague. Well, it's funny to say the term plague. I, I see it as, you know, when we talk about this digital noise of James Bond, what it does is it has a way of like infecting the people around you and the people you meet. Mm. You, and they kind of turn into these zombies who you can meet the sweetest old lady in the world. <laughs> and then you say your name is James Bond and she'll make a martini joke or, or she'll, she'll ask if you sleep with as many women as he does. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it, wherever they go, this thing has a way of kind of like turning the people around them into sort of the enemy uh, as well. And, and you can only imagine, you think it sounds funny, don't you? But but imagine this every single interaction in every day of your life. And mm -hmm. we, we don't think in our lives how much we kind of trade our names about you know what I mean I I I you know a few minutes ago I was like oh it's Richard Krauss you, you know and just the number of times you hand over your 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 credit card or your information right. especially especially on you've seen the film the online component becomes very yeah. big and then the number of times you you put your name in online or hand your passport these guys are hypersensitive to those moments where your name gets traded Ian Fleming chose the name because uh, he wanted something that sounded flat, you know, quiet. And it's ironic, I guess, that it has become one of the most recognizable names worldwide. Your film certainly makes a point of that, showing the, the name recognition from absolutely everywhere on the planet. Um, and, and so uh, I find it ironic that Ian Fleming's ornithologist that inspired the name, the flat, quiet name, is now the most famous name in the world. Yeah, I mean, I mean, funnily enough, since you're in Canada, the, the CBC did the only ever recorded interview with, mm -hmm. with Ian Fleming. And so we use that a lot in our film. Um, and the extended version of the line we'd use in the film, if we could afford to pay the CBC some more money, is that <laughs> Ian Fleming says that, that heroes at the time were called things like Bulldog Drummond or Peregrine Carruthers or Sherlock Holmes. They would have these very elaborate names. And so he wanted to go in the opposite direction because this was supposed to be this sort of anonymous mm -hmm. secret secret agent and so he says that he wanted to pick a really flat quiet name and then he saw james bond on, on the cover of a book he owned called birds of the west indies by the american ornithologist james bond and he went that sounded like a really flat quiet name and so i stole it and use it and it still is a really flat quiet name it's just that it now comes with you know 70 years of pop culture connotations and references that come upon it. But, you know, some of my characters do say in the film, I, I like the name. It's it's a good name. Do you, you know what I mean? J James Bond is it's a, a good name. It's a solid name. Yeah. Rolls off the tongue. Well, but you also look at, at heroes in cinema, Richard, and you, you have, you know, for instance, Jason Bourne is a JB. Jack Bauer from, from 24, uh, one of your great Canadians, is is yep. is a JB. And and I'm no professor of linguistics or anything, but there does seem to be something about that JB thing kind of works somehow in terms of establishing a, a male pop culture hero there's there is something about that name that that, that just works and, and you do wonder if ian fleming had have called james bond something like bulldog drummond whether it would still be the success it was today you know names as you say are important 
there is something that comes out of this film about the privilege of identity, the idea that um, you have obviously your own personal identity, but you are or you have this foisted upon you, this this notion of alpha male, of fantasy man, of all those things foisted upon you when you share a name with a character like James Bond. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I would argue that actually, as men, we all have the identity of James Bond foisted upon us mm. from a young age. You know, I, I'm I'm a homosexual, and I think I had to deal. I, I was also a young homosexual James Bond fan, you know, who had James Bond posters all over my walls, and that confused the hell out of my family when I came out. First thing my mother said to me was, "What's happened to my little James Bond?" It was the Bond thing that really threw her. And I think as men, we are, you know, we do have this sort of like alpha, you know, idea sort of foisted upon us from a young age. Maybe less so in schools these days, but I think certainly when we were growing up. Yep. Um, and whether or not that's not people telling us to be James Bond, but it's kind of the same thing. And, and, and especially in the way that it comes to us through like advertising, you know, especially with the Bond series, you know, like car advertising and alcohol advertising and things, it, it, it does kind of foist this idea of maildom upon you. And I think we are all, I'm not going to say victims because that's going too far, but mm. I think we have all had to deal with James Bond as the world's greatest symbol of the alpha male. I think in my film, it's it's a laser focused version of that <laughs> because their name actually is James Bond. But I think I think we've all had our moments where we've struggled in the ways that we are not James Bond. Mm -hmm. I mean, I only speak for myself, Richard, but but I, I think it's something that kind of hits all of us in, in one way or another. Was there one particular James Bond that really stood out for you? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's hard because I have to avoid a rather massive spoiler that happens about right. halfway halfway through this movie. There is, I'll say there is one character in this film who is the last person who you expect to suddenly appear uh, uh, on screen in this film um and they are part of something which um probably they're not in the witness protection program they're kind of in a witness protection program of their own making mm -hmm. but in the us where i am now you would call it the witness protection right. program right. um and they were the most surprising characters to me a because i found them by accident uh, in a way that somewhat alarmed them, simply because of the fact I was searching for people <laughs> named James Bond, I accidentally came across them. They actually called the police and did a, did a search on me first to make it sure I wasn't the first. Sorry, I'm having to talk around a few things here, Richard. Yep. But yeah, there, there is one character in this film who uh, I became incredibly kind of close with and kind of went on a real uh, sort of journey with. And then the, the other one in the film is the Swedish James Bond, who's a man named, he's a man who was born as Gunnar Schaefer. And he was actually the son of an escaped Nazi who had escaped to Sweden um, and who, you know, through various events in the film, eventually t literally turned himself into James Bond. Um, and what's been nice with him as a documentarian is you're obviously filming these doc documentaries for a few years, but these people are not actors, they're, they're real people. And often when they allow you to film them, you've got them on a good day or a good month or a good year. And then when you call them back a year later, often, you know, they're then in the middle of a lawsuit or they've lost their job right. or they're getting divorced. And the last thing they want to do is do more filming for your stupid James Bond documentary. <laughs> so you have that a lot 
in in documentary whereas the swedish james bond he loves james bond so much that he was calling me he was calling me to say hey i've rented james bond's house in lake como come film me there or i'm about to buy james bond's hovercraft from die another day come and come and film me doing that and i've just been with him in sweden doing the whole press tour and he's going to every screening and, and and he's absolutely loving it um and i think we've become kind of very kind of close friends through that um but yeah as, as a filmmaker especially in documentary you appreciate the people who actually want to keep doing stuff mm -hmm. with you you're listening to director matt bauer on the richard Krauss show his film the other fellow is available on vod and in select theaters now what people should know about this is that it's not a film about james bond's films <laughs> this is a much different thing it is about the characters that you're essaying in the film not the not yeah. let die you're not covering the the movies yeah no, I mean, what, what we wanted to make in this film was a film that stood entirely on its own feet. And what that meant for me is you see a lot kind of on like sort of Netflix or whatever these days, and they're kind of these quite relaxed documentaries about a pop culture subject. Right. And it might be a band talking about their album from 30 years ago, or, or you know, there's a great film called like Trekkies, which is about Star Trek mm -hmm. fans. And there's, there's another great film called um, The People versus George Lucas, which is talking to, to Star Wars fans about their reactions to the phantom menace and they're both great films but all of the interview subjects in those films are, are passive subjects who are reflecting on something in the past right. i wanted a film full of characters who were who were active who were very much in the middle of their own dramatic situations so you know we follow you know a swedish man in the process of turning himself into james bond um, you know, we follow this this gay New York theater director, but it was very important that that was filmed at the time when Spectre was coming out. And so he was actually doing a lot of like ads and TV commercials and stuff as a real James Bond as that was happening. And then th there's a, a guy in the film who we interview in in prison as he's awaiting trial for, for murder. Um, and we go through his whole story of being on the run from the police. And then in the other story we can't talk about, uh, you know, we are following somebody who's essentially being, you know, imprisoned and 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 needs to escape. And so it was very, and, and with the ornithologist, we're following his wife tracking down Ian Fleming to kind of find him. So I, I wanted it to be a film like Trekkies or The People versus George Lucas, but but where people were like on the run from the police or on the run from a stalker. Um, and in the middle of these very dramatic, th there's another version of this film where it's just these guys called James Bond who just sit back and smoke a cigar and go, oh, yeah, people make some jokes sometimes. <laughs> um, that's not this film. And I think the audience will be quite surprised how hard it goes down that line. Yeah. Have you heard from the James Bond estate? Have you heard from the producers of the James Bond movies? Uh, no, we haven't. We haven't heard from them um, kind of at this point on this film. I, th I think what I'll say on that is what we wanted to do in terms of the official James Bond series is be very clear what we were mm -hmm. at, at all times. So there's a reason the tagline for our film is a film about real men named James Bond. Right. And we wanted to be very clear in all of our marketing kind of what the, what the film was, um, because, you know, our poster is all of the is all of our characters staring up at a big billboard of James Bond. Uh, but even in that, we and our original tagline that we wanted was Bonds, James Bonds, 
uh, on the poster, right? But we didn't want to come close to anything resembling market confusion. So and we didn't want, you know, even though it sounds mad, we didn't want this to look like the Spider-Man Far From Home right. of the James Bond films. And maybe this is like a James Bond team-up <laughs> film where Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan, I said, you know, in, in today's landscape, that sort of thing happens. Right. So yeah, we, we've we've made sure that we're very clear all along what what we are and what we aren't. I do like the tagline though. Bonds, James Bonds is pretty good. It, it, it's it's quite good, but again, we di- we didn't want, and also we just don't want to confuse our audience. Yeah. It, it actually it, it is it actually is a slightly difficult concept to get across to the audience in a single poster image mm-hmm. or or sort of something like that. So we've yeah we we wanted to be sort of very clear on that, and and also of course you know the film doesn't use any clips from the movies mm-hmm. or anything like that, and that's because it's it's not about that. You know the clips that we use are people on CNN talking about James Bond, you know, and that, 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 again, that's the pressure that sits on my guy's shoulders. It's not actually the plot of Skyfall. The plot of Skyfall could not be less relevant (laughs) to these men. That's not what comes after them. It's the poster for Skyfall that drives past them on the bus. That's the problem. That was director Matt Bauer on the Richard Krauss show. His film, The Other Fellow, all about people named James Bond who aren't actually 007s, is in theaters and on demand right now. My next guest is uh, someone who says out loud what other servers wish that they could say. He is a writer, he is a waiter, he's an actor, a content creator, he's the voice of restaurant servers on Twitter, and Instagram. He is the bitchy waiter on TikTok. He's the official BW uh, in real life. He's Darren Cardoza, and he joins me now from New York City. Darren, how are you? Hi, Richard. Thank you. I'm very well. Thanks. Uh, Thank you for uh, taking a few minutes to uh, speak to me today. I saw your article in Food and Wine magazine, and it caught my eye because I was a bartender and a waiter for many, many years, and I loved it. I loved doing it until the day that I didn't love doing it, and then I didn't do it anymore, but I did it for a long time. And uh, the article that you wrote is called, Are You Being Rude to Your Server Without Realizing It? You might not even know your making these faux pas, uh, but now would be the time to stop. So there's a couple of things to sort of set this up that I'll ask you. Um, Do you think that uh, patrons, that your customers, have changed uh, the way they behave in restaurants since the pandemic? Has that made an effect uh, in the way that you interact with customers? Yeah, it definitely has. And I would say it's even changed a couple of times since the pandemic, because Mm -hmm. I know when the pandemic first started, uh, customers were very, very grateful to us right. who were working in the service industry. And just, I felt like they were gracious and and giving us tips. And now I sort of feel like they've kind of slipped back to where they used to be, where they just sort of take us uh, for granted and maybe not treat us so nicely as, you know, as they were at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, they're not throwing the 40% tips around anymore. No, and those were nice. I will tell you that. That was great. So let's uh, go through this uh, section by section. Uh, There's uh, a a heading here that says, don't assume your server does something other than wait tables for a living. Now, there are two, my experience anyway, two kinds of waiters. There are people that do it uh, and they're an actor or they've got something else bubbling on the side 
totally legit. Then there are those who are career waiters, and I love a career waiter. They take pride in the job, they like the job, and it's it's what they do, and there's absolutely no shame in that. So that's, I guess, what you're saying here when you say don't assume your waiter, your server, to something other than wait tables for a living. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people think that people who are in the restaurant industry have no other options. Mm. And it's what you said, some some choose to do it uh, because it's what they love and some choose to do it because it's a great source of income, even though maybe they're a teacher, you know, nine months out right. of the year, maybe they're in school and waiting tables allows them to make an income while still doing something else that's of merit. And I think a lot of customers just assume that waiters and waitresses are simply waiters and waitresses, mm. and it's not always the truth. And I think it's kind of hurtful to assume that that's all that we can do. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I, I think that is too, but there's nothing wrong with only being a server. There is not. And yeah. I always try to encourage people who have who have made a career out of the restaurant industry to embrace it because mm -hmm. it is a noble profession. You know, it, it, it's something that people can make a good living on. And I hate when I see people who feel embarrassed that they're a server after a certain age. You know, I'm I'm well into my 50s and I've waited tables plenty of years. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm not embarrassed by it. And I don't think anyone should be. No. So the next segment segment is no one knows the better the menu better than your server, and uh, so I have worked in restaurants where uh, people would come in and just essentially treat the menu like a, a series of ingredients and, oh, yeah. and, and sort of take things apart. And that's not really the way it works in a lot of restaurants. Certainly not uh, the last restaurant I worked in, which was very strict about substitutions and all that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. So tell me a little bit about uh, this segment for you. It's just trusting well, the waiter to tell you what's what. Well, I, I, I wrote about the fact that, that so many times customers will ask, you know, what's the best thing on the menu mm -hmm. or what do you recommend? And so you really put some thought in that to tell them, well, I think the grilled salmon is really delicious because it's it's on the grill. It's got a smoky flavor. It's really, you know, I think you're really going to love it. And then they just wrinkle their nose and like, oh, I don't want that. No, you know what? I'm just going to get a hamburger. Then why did you ask me? You know, I, I'm telling you what 90% of my customers want and what they enjoy to eat. So if you don't want my opinion, don't ask me. I'm telling you honestly what What's the best thing in the menu? I want to do this for us. You're listening to Darren Cordova on The Richard Krause Show. His handle on Twitter is at BitchyWaiter. I was honest about that. Sometimes, oh, yeah. you know, there's the old waiter thing. It's like the, the chef will say, listen, we got a lot of uh, tilapia. We got to get rid of. Yeah. <laughs> if right. people ask, tell them that's the best thing on the menu. I was always yeah. honest about it, and it always paid off, I thought. Yeah, I, I think honesty does pay off. If you can be honest with your customer. I mean, I've had people ask me what the best wine was, and at the time, I knew nothing about wine, and I was mm. flat on honest with them and yeah. said, you'd be better off asking someone else. And they appreciated it. They gave me a really good tip because I didn't just try to sell them the most expensive bottle of wine we had. Absolutely. So the next is your table isn't a trash bin. This one seems fairly self-explanatory, but it also, I think, speaks to some experience that you've had that must have been particularly traumatic. Otherwise, it wouldn't be on this list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm often surprised at how comfortable people can be with leaving things on the table that should never be on a table, period, but mm -hmm. let alone for someone else to take care of. And I'm telling you the truth. I have more than once uh, taken a dirty diaper oh. off of a table that someone changed at a table and thought, number one, it's okay to change their baby at a restaurant table. But number two, I'm just going to leave it on the table for, for my waiter to take away for me. That is not okay. 
<laughs> no, wow. you want to leave like a gum wrapper or something? Yep. Sure. But um, like a, a used mask or a snotty Kleenex? No, that, that goes home with you, people. That's the truth. I've seen some things, but I've never seen a dirty diaper left on a oh, table. Wow. I, I've polled it on my Twitter account, and I'm surprised how many people have seen it. So it's wow. not as rare of an occurrence that we would hope. Something that I never liked, and it seems to happen a lot, and you wouldn't think that it would because we are all about personal space and everyone wants their own personal space, but people have a tendency to touch their waiters. They grab them, they uh, hang on to them. I've had people sort of like hold my hand uh, yeah. years ago. Uh, tell me a little bit about this, because this also seems like it comes from personal experience for you. Yeah, and it, it also seems like a no-brainer that you wouldn't touch a stranger, right? Mm -hmm. But it happens all the time with servers, and you know, I, I think it probably happens with um, with female servers more often. Yep. I think a lot of men are quite comfortable just touching their server, and sometimes people will do it with the expectation that they're just trying to get your attention, and mm -hmm. and that's fine. But still, I, I don't want to be grabbed by you know. Pretty much anybody, even the people I know, I don't want them to grab me, and I definitely don't want to be grabbed by a stranger. So, if you need your service attention, just you know, make eye contact. Uh, you don't really actually need to just touch us. It's okay. We'll get to you. I promise. In New York, are you having the same problem that you're having that we're having in Toronto here, where it's very difficult to get people to work in restaurants right now? Yeah, that seems to be the case. Uh, a lot of people don't seem to want to work in a restaurant right now, and. I think it's because when people were unemployed during the pandemic, they kind of recognized that their time was really special to them, and yep. maybe they didn't want to be in a job that they weren't appreciated for. So, uh, yeah, I think it is a challenge for restaurants to staff uh, to staff their restaurants right now. There's a meme that you have here, and it says, when the customer tells me they know the owner, and then you play this. I, I don't care. And I used to work in a restaurant. The owner's name was Francis, F-R-A-N-C-E-S. That okay. is the female uh, version of Francis. Right. And so people would come in and they'd be like, I want a table and I want it right now. And I'd say, well, I'm sorry, we don't have any tables for you. Well, find Francis for me. Find Francis. Uh, I'm a friend of Francis. And when he gets here, he'll get me uh, a table. And <laughs> I wish I had that meme. <laughs> in those moments. Did. Yeah, you can also always say, uh, when they say, I know the owner, you can say, which one? Yes. And that's really going to pinpoint. Even if there's just one owner, you can really throw them for a loop on that one. Yep, yep. <laughs> I love that. These are tips for all waiters as the things everyone should know. In the article in Food & Wine magazine that you wrote uh, called, Are You Being Rude to Your Server Without Realizing It? Uh, you end on a, a, a note of, of empathy. Really, uh, the subject title here is "Your Eyes Have It," and it's essentially just saying, you know, we're we're it's a plea for kindness. We're all people here, whether you're sitting at the table and I'm standing next to it taking the order, or vice versa. Eye contact's a good thing. Yeah, it's and it's the easiest thing in the world for anyone to do. Most of us have the ability to move our eyeballs in the direction that we choose. So why would we not just take a half a second to just point them in the direction of the person who's bringing your food so you can just make that millisecond of a human connection instead of just ignoring the person who's bringing your food? It's just it's rude to not do it and it's so simple to 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 make it happen. I don't know why it's not automatic for every single person. Have you seen the movie The Menu? 
No. Oh. How have I not, how I, have I not seen this? I do not know how you have not seen it. Uh, Rafe Fiennes plays a chef who uh, decides that on the last night that his very exclusive restaurant is open, he's going oh. to get even with uh, you know with people that have have kept him in business but are never happy. He says, "I'm done trying to satisfy people that you can't satisfy." Oh, I do know this movie. I haven't seen it. Yes, I've heard of it. Well, this feels like it's right up your alley. (laughs) I think this might be something you'd enjoy. Yeah, I would need to watch that. Are you working in a restaurant uh, currently? Do you have a night off and that's why we're talking? Uh, I am. I did work today, but right now I am sort of in between serving jobs. I'm still working for restaurants, right. and I'm consulting, and I'm writing a lot about them. But um, I haven't had an apron on for a little while. But um, I, I, I have full faith that it will soon be wrapped around my waist, not <laughs> too far into the future. You're listening to Darren Cardoza on the Richard Krause Show. His handle on Twitter is at bitchywaiter, and you can find his blog at thebitchywaiter.com. Now, we've talked about uh, things here that you expect the customers to, to uh, do, uh, but waiters have, you know, responsibilities as well. And, Absolutely. you know, and and I really liked doing it. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the social aspect of it. I enjoyed uh, just you know, seeing people really enjoy a meal and, and getting people yeah. a drink that they were very happy with. What is it for you that has kept you doing it for so long? Well, there is a human connection about it. And I guess it's just something in my nature that I, I do. I like to please people despite my moniker on the internet. On the internet. Yeah, you know, that's right. I do like to make people happy, whether it's serving them food or standing on a stage and making them laugh, whatever I can do. So, um, you know, I, I guess it's just inherent that I, I like to be of service to people. And, you know, when I started my blog, it was really just to complain about waiting tables. And now I've been writing about it for so long that I sort of feel like I have to keep working in a restaurant <laughs> so that right. I can keep being the bitchy later. <laughs> so it's ironic. I think I painted myself into a little bitchy corner, but uh, here I am. <laughs> Now, there's something that is starting to uh, become more and more prevalent here in Canada. I think in New York, probably this has been something that's happening, been happening for a while. But tell me how you feel about this. So there's a restaurant in Vancouver. It's a Michelin star restaurant. They only do a tasting menu. And if you make a reservation, uh, whether it's for two people or for 10 people, they charge you in advance. They charge you $175 per head. Uh, and that includes a tip. And that's the tasting menu. And I think there's probably uh, some wine tasting that goes along with that. It's a complete one and done. You just pay up and then you just, when you're done, you just get up and leave the table. Um, some people are pushing back against this, but I think it's kind of like going to the drive-in. You pay before you get your food there. I don't see why you wouldn't do it in a, in a more upscale restaurant where each seat at, at every table is real real estate. And if you make a, yeah. a reservation and don't show up, you're costing the restaurant money and you're costing the waiter money. Uh, how do you feel about it? No, I totally agree with you, especially in a case like that where it's a tasting menu. It's very specific and it's not going to be inexpensive. So yeah, if you make a reservation and don't show up for that, they've already kind of planned their whole evening around you sitting at that chair. So yeah, you should definitely be charged for it. And I'm sure there's some exceptions if you can't make it, you know, maybe provide a doctor's note or a death certificate for why you can't be there. But if you made a reservation, you know, follow through on it, especially if something that it costs that much money. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Why not do it? Yeah, that what this restaurant does, 
they say you can cancel within 48 hours. Uh, if it's any less than that, though, you you have to have a death certificate. You've got to have a really good reason why you're not going to show up. And uh, I get it. It took me a little bit of convincing, uh, but I, it, it, right now, as I sit here, I think that's probably the way to go. I know that when I worked in restaurants, uh, people would reserve tables of 10. You know, that's your night. You're, that's what you're yeah. thinking you're going to make money for, and then not show up, or three people show up, or something like that, and they show up late, and it really throws a, a wrench into the whole yeah. operation. So, yeah, I, I don't see. It doesn't seem out of the question to me. I, I know that when I make a hair appointment or a, you know a spa appointment mm-hmm. or something, you know, I, I don't necessarily have to pay in advance. But if I don't show up, they're going to charge me for it. So why should it be any different for a really expensive restaurant? Darren Cardoza, thank you so much. Richard, thank you. This was awesome. I really appreciate it. Yeah, real pleasure to to speak to you. Uh, Check Darren out, the bitchy waiter on Twitter, Instagram, and then on TikTok, it's uh, official BW. Check him out in food and wine, and maybe I'll see you in a restaurant in New York sometime. I hope so. That would be great. But I hope we're both just eating and I'm not serving you. That's absolutely what I'm hoping for as well. All right, Darren, (laughs) thanks so much. That was Darren Cardoza. Follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Bitchy Waiter. It's a good follow. Lots of laughs. Since both of my guests have been from New York City, I thought I'd tell you one more New York City story this week. This is Moby, EDM superstar, on what it was like to live next door to his musical idol, I mean, how do you deal with living next door to David Bowie in New York City? You have to shut down the normal part of your brain, (laughs) you know, because, um, and referencing an old friend of mine who's also Canadian, Mike Myers in Wayne's World, when he and Garth meet Alice Cooper in Wayne's World for about 20 seconds, they're holding it together. And then they fall on the ground and just say, we're not worthy. Every second I spent with David Bowie, I wanted to throw myself on the ground and just say, like, I'm not worthy. Like, because the whole time, all the time we spent together, we were friends. There was normalcy to it. We were ostensibly peers. We went on tour together Mm -hmm. as co-headliners. Everything I just said should be wrong. Like, there's no part of that that's normal. Like, he's the greatest musician of all time. He was my favorite musician from the time I was maybe nine years old. I'm not supposed to be friends with the greatest mm-hmm. musician of all time. If I'm if I go on tour, like in my mind, if I was to ever go on tour with David Bowie, I would be cleaning the tires on his tour bus. Like that's the natural order of things. That's a great story from Moby. Big thanks to all my guests today. That's all the time we have. Of course, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.